0: Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Dorr. we'll be your new Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we'll be speaking with Nicholas Eberstadt. Joining us today on Banter is Nicholas Eberstadt who is the Henry Wench Chair in Political Economy at AEI, where he researches and writes on demographics and economic development generally, and more specifically on international security in the Korean Peninsula and Asia. Domestically, Nick focuses on poverty and social well-being. He's also a senior advisor to the National Bureau of Asian Research and a founding board member of the U.S. Committee on Human Rights in North Korea. This October, we're very excited that Nick will be receiving the Irving Crystal Award, the highest honor bestowed by AEI. It's an award given annually to individuals who have made exceptional practical and intellectual contributions to improve government policy, social welfare, and political understanding. Nick has also just been with AEI since 1985, so he's one of our longest-serving scholars. Welcome to Banter, Nick.
1: Thank you for inviting me. Phoebe, I'm so happy we're having Nick. Nick was a hero of mine long before I came to AEI, and so it's very appropriate that we start out with you, Nick, in, in the new Banter And I want to thank you for being on Banter. And I also want to ask you a question I've always wanted to ask you since I met you when I came to AI six years ago, which is, how did it all begin? How did you come to AI? What what was your first experience with AI and, and what led you to AI?
2: Well, like so many other things in my life, it was a happy accident. It was, as far as I could tell, completely accidental. Back in the summer of 1985... I was invited to a conference AEI was holding on the perhaps improbable topic of liberation theology. It was organized by the late, great Michael Novak, who was one of AEI's luminaries and all-time greats. I was supposed to critique a paper by a liberation theologian, which is making a, a sort of weak and contrived argument that... Third World debt should all be cancelled in the name of rescuing the poor from a mortality crisis or something like that. And so I came to this conference, which is being held at the Early House, and I, I suppose you'd say I more or less assassinated the paper. It was a it was a pretty miserable piece of work. So this wasn't like so hard. What I didn't realize was that this conference was really actually a sort of a job interview for me. Michael Novak was actually scoping me out for a position that he had opened at AEI in a kind of a new program there. And at the end of this conference, where by the way, I met a number of people who have stayed lifelong friends, the great George Weigel, now biographer of, of Pope John Paul the Great, Ashley Tellis, the great strategist at Carnegie and other people. At the end of this thing, Michael Novak said in his kind of high piping voice, well, I guess you can come to AEI now. I was kind of of floored because I didn't realize that this was actually a job application. And so I, the way I sometimes do, I came and I never left.
1: You know, I got the chance to meet Michael Novak after I came to AI six years ago before he died. And was he a mentor of yours? Did you work under him for a while? And what was that like? Yes.
2: It was, it was the most extraordinary thing to come as a young guy. I actually was young then. I was in my very late 20s when I came to AEI as a set foot on board. AEI was full of these greats that you read about now. Michael Novak, Walter Burns, there was the economist Gottfried Haberler, Bob Goldwyn, there was Dean Kirkpatrick. I could go on for a while. But the place, I mean, it was really kind of like being in a sort of an Olympus of 20th century intellectuals. And Michael Novak not only brought me on board and was a mentor to me, he was a protector. And this is important because there wasn't any cause and effect here, I'm sure. But about six weeks after I arrived at AEI, the place started shaking with crisis and it turned out that the place was in very bad financial shape. That's a, another story, maybe for another time. Yeah. <laughs> and for the next six months, it was a sort of like being in the Soviet Writers' Union circa 1937, because every couple of weeks, we were told that everything was fine, and then the staff would be cut by about 10%. And we'd be told everything was fine, would <laughs> be cut again. And in the worst of this, Michael Novak took me and a couple of people aside and he said, look, if this place goes down, I'm going to look after you. We'll set up a new institute. We'll set up a new place. It's going to be small, but I'm going to look after you." And Michael was a lifelong friend. He was also a dear friend. Uh, Karen and Michael were dear friends of not only mine, but of my wife, Mary. But he was was that sort of a guy.
1: And looking back at those early years or even more recently, is there a work, book, uh, paper by you or by someone else that that you think really stands the test of time. I mean, I'm I'm always trying to pluck things out of the archives that I can call attention to in my you know ongoing effort to celebrate AI's greatness. But from your perspective, looking back, is there something well, that you're I mean, particularly proud of? I mean, there,
2: there was there was an avalanche of great work that was going on then. I mean, it was it was really. The quality of the work, I'm not saying the quality of the work has declined since then. I think the pound for pound, we're probably a better research team now than we were 35 years ago. But the, the quality of the work was really extraordinary and so exciting. I mean, I could i mention something which is really extraneous, but not irrelevant. When I came to AEI, one of the things that Michael tasked me with was working on a continuing discussion group with some of the very serious people from the left and right sides of the aisle on the question of family and welfare reform. It would have taken somebody like Michael Novak, who could get along with everybody and had a wonderful diplomatic touch, in addition to being extraordinarily learned and perceptive and quick, would have taken somebody like him to pull all of that together and to bring out what was an AEI publication, I guess this must have been from the kind of mid to late 1980s called The New Consensus on Welfare in the Family. It's, I think, unknown to the modern reader, but like many things from AEI in earlier decades, you can take a little stroll down memory lane and really have your eyes opened. It holds up really well.
1: Now, Nick, one of the things we like to highlight about you mm-hmm. in in the halls of AEI, it seems to me, and I may not have this exactly right, I'm never great at pulling quotes out of the air, but is this line of yours, people are our greatest asset. And I just wonder about what do you mean by that? Why do you say that? And how does it relate to your study of demography and your work in a variety of areas, whether it's on the one-child policy or on efforts to increase greater work among men in America. Let's start with that fundamental precept, and then build from that. Sure.
2: Human beings are a, well, I mean, metaphysically, human beings are a blessing and a treasure. But in practical terms, and this is policy research, human beings are a resource. And much of public policy is about unlocking the value in human beings. I don't know if you are aware of this, and please don't fire me if you weren't, <laughs> uh, but I started out in life as a pretty hard left Marxist back in the 1970s. But even when I was at my most wayward leftist meanderings, I kind of understood when I was starting, this is when I was beginning to do population studies and demographic homework and that sort of stuff, that there was something very precious about human beings. And it wasn't just that I read about the labor theory of value, but there was something really extraordinarily important that had to be defended in people, even if they were people who didn't didn't have a public or political voice. I became aware very, very early on in the 1970s of the sort of anti-natal assault that was then underway in elevated circles in the academy, and in politics, and in foundation land, and elsewhere. This antinatal assault against little people, let's call them. And it was immensely offensive to me, and also I thought somewhat counterintuitive, to think that the elevated people knew better what was good for the little people than the little people knew themselves. and. From the, from the very beginning, I, I was an anti-Malthusian. It was Neo-Malthusian then, and it's gone through a number of different sorts of you know zombie rise from the dead, resuscitation since then. We see it increasingly being revived now in other sorts of ways. But the idea that our entire flourishing as a modern civilization was not intimately related with the expansion of human choice and the cultivation of human resources seemed to me kind of preposterous. I guess that's the kind of the long-winded sort of genesis. More specifically, you know, I've got a little kind of like toolkit that I use, you know, kind of a statistical toolkit. And one of the nice things about the statistical toolkit is that you can take it kind of anywhere and use it. You can use it, on the United States on contemporary US. You can take it to China today. I used it in studying poverty and uh, social well-being in Soviet communist societies in the era right before Soviet communism collapsed. But it's, I think, a very useful touchstone that allows us to regard the constraints on human progress in a sort of a way that makes for comparison across countries and times and cultures.
1: I always associate with you a celebration of humanity. And it makes me want to, sometimes I think of you as kind of one of our, you're not the only one, bleeding heart conservatives. You you are devoted to helping people who struggle flourish. I love that about you and about your work and about the spirit of your work. But having said that, You're also kind of a little worried and a little glum about the state of work and faith and family and attitude toward collectivism and government assistance in the United States these days. And are we in trouble?
2: I would say, Robert, we've got this paradoxical situation in the United States today. I don't think there's ever been a country that's been as powerful geopolitically as we are today. And I don't think there's ever been a society that's been as materially successful as we are today. We have racked up achievements that are a wonder in world history. But then at the same time, I think we can see that there are troubling problems that are eroding the social foundation for this world historical success. And the paradoxical social troubles, I would say, have an awful lot to do with what you just mentioned. I suppose if we were to be neutral about it with the transition that the family is undergoing, with the increasing, I would say, dependence, I suppose if we were to be neutral, we'd say program participation (laughs) <laughs> you don't American, have to be neutral, but, Nick. You don't have to be neutral. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. No, but with the the increasing dependence upon welfare benefits means tested benefits that a growing fraction of the American population is subject to. And what I think, we might as well not be diplomatic, but it's a flat-out crisis of work, especially a crisis of work for men that occurred well before the current COVID emergency, where we saw prime age men the peak of their working lives with lower work rates than were reported at the tail end of the great depression we have this paradoxical situation and we have to I think recognize it and try to address it and because those problems I just mentioned don't just make for poverty and the sort of the traditional sense or the sorts of the statistical sense that people use in talking about poverty. They make for misery. And human misery is something that hasn't gone away with our extraordinary ascent over the course of the 20th and early 21st century.
1: So, Nick, you are unique at AI in that you stand in different worlds. And and you're both a scholar of Poverty and opportunity. I get bored easily, Robert. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's what I it know. seems like. <laughs> yeah. So I just wanted to ask, how did that happen? How did you become a leader in our studies of North Korea and Asia and, and China's demographic challenges, as well as a leader in our study of work in America among men or among other populations? How how did you move into both those fields? I don't know. I
2: mean, I don't, I don't have a very good answer for that. <laughs> they, seem like kind of, they seem like kind of interesting, important problems. I would have said they were all of the things that I do were connected by the theme of constraints upon human freedom or constraints upon human choice. And most of the things that I deal with are also connected with this little toolkit I was mentioning. It's a very simple statistical toolkit. Now. I'm a kind of a dinosaur at AEI in that I was trained back in the 1970s in quantitative stuff. I think that a lot of the RAs are probably better than I am in econometrics and uh, statistics and math. I'd say that I'm sort of a professor of arithmetic in that I can tell if there are too many zeros in the answer that's part of conventional wisdom, and I can also point out if the sign that the pundits and prognosticators and researchers are putting in front of the number is negative when it should be positive or positive when it should be negative. What I seem to have done over the last, you know, decades is repeatedly sort of stumble over these problems that are hiding in plain sight, the things that, are, that look to me like they should be obvious. But they don't seem to be obvious, except that once you point to them, then sometimes other people say, oh, yeah, it's kind of hard for me to explain how they all hang together. But you know, back in the 1970s, I was looking at, I was then still a pretty bad leftist, but I was looking at the available statistical information on Mao's China, and I say, no, there's no way that the claims that people are making at Stanford and other places about China's Mao's great economic success. And, success against poverty can be true and just let's do the arithmetic on it mm. and a little bit later on i was c- kind of trying to avoid working on my phd i spent a lot of time <laughs> trying to avoid working on my phd <laughs> and i all of a sudden on my radar screen this study popped up showing that infant mortality in the soviet union had been rising and then the soviet authorities you know kind of Trotsky'd the entire statistical series on infant mortality, they they made it go dark. And I said, what happens in an advanced industrialized urbanized society to make infant mortality rise over time? And this got me jumping down the rabbit hole, which eventually led me to kind of understand a little bit more about the, the critical dysfunction of late Soviet society before the collapse. And Robert, you know, stuff that we've been talking about you and I, over the years, about poverty and the mismeasure of poverty in the United States. I mean, does it pass the laugh out loud test that the poverty rate in the United States, you know, in the, the early 2000s was higher than it had been 30 or 40 years earlier? Now, I don't think it does. So it goes from one sort of misbegotten, misanalysis of big policy problem to the next. I've kind of like lurched along in a great way.
0: Yeah. I love that description.
2: The beats working. <laughs> <Wow>.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love the description of the the problems hiding in plain sight. Moving into some of the the foreign policy topics. So, I was curious to hear a little bit more Nick about just how you first became interested in in China and in North Korea and how kind of your your outlook as a demographer maybe maybe drove that interest.
2: Sure. Well, I started out interested in Maoist China because I thought I was going to be kind of an acolyte for the place. I thought I was going to be sort of a worshiper for the place. So interesting. Takes us back a while. Yeah. I had this experience, I guess, over time in the the 1970s, and it was it was kind of like Nick meet fact. (laughs) And I'd learn something that I didn't know, and then I'd say, okay. Well, Nick, either you're going to have to find some different facts, or you're going to have to find some new opinions. Mm. And so very gradually, things sort of, you know, my, my view about the way the world worked and about international relations and about the, the communist movement and the socialist quest, they kind of changed. But I started out being interested in China for that reason. It took me a couple of years to become an anti-communist, and I suppose I've never kind of gotten over that part of the program. So I thought we could have kind of like fun with facts. I, I did a bunch of work in the 70s and 80s on trying to compare progress against poverty in a sort of a empirical statistical way in communist and non-communist societies. And it seemed to me that the real natural experiment on the face of the earth was taking place in the Korean peninsula because you had the same people separated suddenly through the partition of nineteen forty five at the end of World War II. radically different polities, the Kim family of the North, the what's developed into South Korean open society, market-oriented democracy in the South. And I thought this would make a great case study to compare statistically. And that was actually my PhD dissertation. There was only one little problem with my research program, which was that there were really no reliable, international and internationally available data on North Korea's social or economic performance when I started out on this quixotic quest. And back in those days, which was when South Korea was still under a military dictatorship, a lot of things that my colleagues at Harvard thought they knew about the South Korean economy were wrong because it was a controlled society and there were slander against the state laws in South Korea. where. Research colleagues in South Korea told you things the state thought was defamatory. You could get in a whole lot of trouble. So if I'd been a, you know, if I'd been a more sensible person, I'd have, you know, run away from this stuff as soon as I realized how, how difficult and perplexing it was, mm-hmm. and found a nice doable PhD thesis. But since I'm kind of stubborn, I stuck with it. That was the beginning of that's how I guess I got my taste for this improbable interest in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Now, I would have thought that the DPRK would have gone the way of the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc states long ago, but it did not, which shows that it's not so difficult to surprise me. It remains a rather problematic feature in the geopolitical landscape. That's the bad part of the world. The good part for Nick, I guess, is that it's a fascinating problem to try to understand.
1: I'm glad we brought up North Korea and its many problems and very, very, very awful leadership. And because that allows us to talk a little bit about the current president of the United States. I just wondered, what's your take? I've talked to you about this a year ago, and I was just wondering whether it's updated a little bit on the way in which the Trump administration has dealt with North Korea.
2: Well, I would say that if we look only at the Trump administration's approach to North Korea, to DPRK, there are parts of it which make me want to tear my hair out. The sort of the "I'm in love with this guy" sort of you know off offhand comment, some of the perhaps inadvertent praise that President Trump has lavished on Kim Jong Un in the in the public. I mean, words really do matter, and what the President of the United States says is the declaratory record of foreign policy for the free world. It's not so easy to put that aside, but if one puts that aside, in terms of power politics, in terms of threat reduction, President Trump has probably been more effective and clear-eyed than any of his predecessors since the end of the Cold War in attempting to address and reduce the threat that North Korea poses to the United States, U.S. allies, and the international community. Now, admittedly, that is a rather low bar because U.S. policy towards North Korea has been so misbegotten for 30 years. And the North Korean side has almost no cards in its hand managed to play its situation against us in such a way that it began as an impoverished remote dictatorship in Northeast Asia with no nuclear weapons and is now an impoverished remote dictatorship in North Korea that holds nuclear weapons. We'd have to say that the clock is still running. It's a zero sum game. And the North Korean intentions to threaten the U.S. mainland with a credible menace of deliverable nuclear weapons, in my judgment and in my interpretation, I don't think that that's changed. Simply slowing down the clock probably isn't enough. But Compared to his predecessors, I think it's a pretty strong case to be made that President Trump's policy has been more effective.
1: So just to, I'd like a metric or a, a measurement of that. How, how do we know? I mean, are they economically in worse shape? Are, is their military power been degraded? What is the sign of effectiveness? I don't doubt that. I just, I just don't know what it is.
2: Following North Korea is probably a mugs game, if you want to be optimistic, or a fool's game if you want to be a little bit more realistic. Because the North Korean leadership has made something like an art out of strategic deception that the North Korean leadership survives to this day because it has been so successful in misleading or deceiving its overseas adversaries about its strengths and its weaknesses and its objectives and its strategy. So anything that I say has to be taken with that very much in mind. What we can see, uh, for example, is that there was a, a very marked acceleration of North Korean missile and nuke testing under the tenure of the third Kim, of Kim Jong-un, that halted a couple of years ago. That doesn't mean that the capabilities are not continuing. We have to assume the capabilities are continuing. But with the maximum pressure campaign, so-called, which isn't maximum pressure, I wish it were, but it's a lot more pressure than had than been put in place for it an intrinsically dysfunctional economic system is being put under much more duress. And we've not seen yet the signs of, I think, severe economic crisis, systemic crisis that would be impossible to conceal if things had gone into a full blown, you know, slide towards catastrophe. We haven't seen famine, we haven't seen market prices spiral out of control. We haven't seen the dictator confiscate the wealth of this little Donju class of money masters so called that he's allowed to pop up to help create a little bit of very little bit of prosperity that he's taxing to help his military machine move forward. I don't have really the metrics to give you, Robert, that I would like to. I guess what I'm talking about here is more as if I'm like a homicide detective (laughs) following a perp for 35 years, and I Hmm. think I know the perp's way, and that's unfortunately more in the realm of art than it is in science.
1: I think I may have mentioned to you that I have been reading John Bolton's account of his experience in the Trump administration. And one of the things that I was surprised by, and you weren't, wouldn't be surprised by it, and probably Phoebe wouldn't be surprised by it, but I'm not a foreign policy expert, was his depiction of the South Korean leadership being less hardline toward North Korea than the American position, it seemed, in some of the discussions. And I just wanted to, you to explain that to me What's your take on the South Korean attitude toward North Korea?
2: It's a really interesting question, Robert. And it is a historical question because there are really, I mean, this is my interpretation. I would say there are two civil wars in the Korean peninsula that haven't been settled. One of the civil wars is between the state in the North and the state in the South. And those two states are both vying for what they see as the single seat of power that should be allowed in this kind of geopolitical game, musical chairs. I think there should be just one chair on the peninsula. That's one unsettled civil war. And I don't think that one will be settled until one of the two governments, at least one of the two governments departs from the scene. But there's another civil war that Americans, and this, even, this includes Americans who have a lot to do with Korean affairs that Americans aren't always aware of, and that's the civil war that's underway in South Korea. And this civil war goes all the way back to 1945 and before. And to oversimplify, the two contending groups are the descendants of the revolutionary leftists on the one side, and the conservatives isn't exactly the right word, but the power holders from the divide before this conservative so-called group was closer to the Japanese imperialists. They're closer to the American government occupiers, if you will. If you scratch today's leftists or today's conservatives when they're in a disagreement with each other, if you just scratch a little bit below the veneer, and that can usually happen, let's say, if you have a couple of drinks with them. That takes away <laughs> the fear pretty quickly. Yeah, the argument will basically get down to a sort of a I'll caricature it a little bit, but the argument will be: your grandfather was a communist collaborator, mom, uh, which word more or less means bastard. Then the other one will say, "Well, your grandfather was a Japanese collaborator, Nam. and these centers of gravity intellectual gravity, still have an enormous vibrancy and life in South Korean politics today, Hmm. because in the Korean Peninsula, nobody has ever forgotten the slight that has ever happened to (laughs) them or their family. And the, the struggle between the historical struggle between the historical radical communist left and the reactionary right... Is fresh as could be. And it doesn't matter that South Korea itself has become an open society, a constitutional democracy, a wonder to the world in terms of its economic leap and prosperity. None of that matters. People still have these mental prisons in which they find themselves. And that helps to explain the endurance of the South Korean left today. I see.
0: Wow. Fascinating.
1: Now, turning to another recent work that I think, Phoebe, you helped put together, or the team did, your wonderful video on China's one-child policy and why it's a tragedy like no other. I just wanted to ask you about the long-term impact on China, which is viewed as sort of a rising power and most significant adversary to the United States. But is your view that the consequences of that policy are going to make China much weaker in the long run, and therefore not as much of an adversary to fear? Or will it make them more dangerous and more something to fear? Well,
2: first of all, I want to salute BB and the rest of the AEI team that produced that documentary. I, I only had some fingerprints very far in the background. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but thank you all very much on that. I mean, I have been a outspoken and public critic of China's population control policy since the very early 1980s. The policy officially came to an end in 2015. Although that doesn't mean that the Chinese Communist Party has given up population control. The Chinese Communist Party still very explicitly says that births are a matter of state, meaning that when push comes to shove, Beijing thinks that it is the state that still should have a say and maybe the ultimate say in whether families have children and how many children families should have. I mean, we may be seeing more of this in the future, just stay tuned. It was the largest and most ambitious social program ever undertaken in human history, Robert. And as you and I know, social policies always have unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. And if you undertake the mother of all social policies, you're going to have the mother of all <laughs> unintended consequences. And it is as a, as a matter of demography, it is exceedingly difficult to estimate exactly how many births were averted through the CCP's bayonet style approach to coercive antinatalism so I can't give you a I can't give you a good number on that. What I think we can say is that the use of police force in the bedroom meant that China China's birth trends were suppressed by force from the early nineteen eighties for three and a half decades, and through to the extent that the government was successful in doing so, altering popular impressions about the family through relentless anti natal propaganda, in undertaking that assault, the Chinese government was making a full frontal attack on the basic unit, not just of every society, the family. It was also toying with the special foundation of China's historical civilization, which was cherished and enrolled in from Confucius from before Confucius and on toward the present through Chinese philosophy and metaphysics. I guess the general tally of the damage would have to include uh, the suppressing of fertility trends and thereby the suppressing of the growth of labor force. China's working age manpower is now in decline and it's on its way down as far as demographers I can see. The acceleration and hastening of population aging, China's on track to go gray faster than any previous society in history, any large group of People in history, except for I mean, the only parallel would be Japan and the past generation, but Japan was already rich when it went gray. The exacerbation of this imbalance between baby boys and baby girls who are now growing up is going to make for an enormous marriage squeeze with a lot of personal tragedy involved. What it means for social stability and international security is another question. But then there's the fraying of the extended family itself. This is something that demographers don't look at usually because they don't have the nice well-behaved data sets. Mm. Since the earliest of times in civilization, empires have collected population numbers on individuals and on households. And the reason they did that is because they wanted manpower and they wanted taxes. Our modern demographic statistics are, you know, kind of based on this long trajectory of imperial interest from ancient times. So we know a lot in China and elsewhere about how many 25-year-old women there are and what those numbers look like and how they're changing. But we don't have a count on how many nieces there are, or how many cousins there are, or how many aunts and uncles. But when we try to model this for China today. We see that the extended family structure is under extraordinary pressure and is atrophying at a really rapid rate. And this may turn out to have much more profound implications for China's future than any of those headcount things that I was just mentioning.
1: So, Nick, you didn't answer my question. Are they going to be more difficult to deal with or less difficult to deal with? The
2: Chinese society is not going to be able to augment the deployable power that the CCP thought it would be inheriting in a generation. The trend is not heading the way that the ambitious rulers were hoping for. China's economy and its economic potential are certainly increasing, and I think we can expect. An increase for a number of different reasons for years and maybe decades ahead, but at a markedly slower pace than the masters were hoping to be able to harness. Now, so then, so what you're really asking about, Robert, is my insight into the calculations that the dictatorship will make if it is still able to maintain power. In this circumstance, it's perfectly possible that a dictatorship slapped with a strategic surprise would behave in an unpredictable and dangerous manner. But I think what we know is that with augmented power, the CCP would be behaving in a predictably dangerous manner. And it's not going to have as much. Wherewithal at its disposal, I don't think, as the masters hoped for.
1: So, a little cultural news and a movie tip for both you and Phoebe, but related to this topic from the Doerr family, is there's a movie out called The Farewell, and it's about a Chinese American family that returns to China to see their grandparents. And it's a great movie. I think it's a little bit of Chinese propaganda, honestly. But my son and daughter-in-law and my wife think I'm paranoid, but I think, Nick, you might see it. But it's a great, really, I I recommend it. But one of the sort of themes, and I want to ask you this, Nick, of this movie that, that is pretty good, is that the difference between the United States and China and between Americans and the Chinese is that we're about the individual and they're about the collective, the family, the group. And of course, in this movie, in my opinion, there's a little bit of tone that we're about me, 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 and and they're about we. And of course, that makes them sound better or more morally praiseworthy. And I've heard this theme before, and maybe it's not justified, but I want to ask you, Nick, is there something to a cultural difference between the Chinese and Americans? with regard to an attitudes toward the collective and the state, or is that purely a result of the political regime in China imposing that view on its people?
2: Well Robert, you know you know there's like five thousand years of Chinese <laughs> tradition behind the family, and the family has been the lifeline of Chinese because it's the only mechanism they've been able to rely upon in the face of capricious dictatorial government and or on the other hand, chaos, war and upheaval. There's an extraordinarily important tradition of, if you want to call the family collective, but in, you know, an extended family or even in clans. I'd say that the fear comparison between Confucian-like or Chinese culture and our culture wouldn't be looking at the dictatorship on the mainland. It would be looking at open societies in Taiwan, or at least for now, open society in Hong Kong, or the very Confucianized open society in South Korea. I think we'd be able to tell a lot more about the importance of family and collective activity and social trust and things like that. I'm not a frequent flyer to China, I've been there a couple of times, but I wouldn't say I'm any on the ground expert there. But my impression is that under Mao and under what's come after Mao, there's the most ruthless sort of throw your grandmother under a bus, sort of, I'm all in it for me and what else is there sort of mentality that you come across all the time. I mean, try getting on a subway in Beijing and see how many kids get up to give their seat to an old lady. Do that sometime. It's an interesting anthropological experiment. I think there's a lot more that's made of this in propagandistic weaponizing of ideas than what we really see on the ground and part of this has to do with i mean if you if you want the proof of it look at what's happening with patterns of childlessness if you really believe in the family and in the continuation of society you might want to contribute to it we've got a kind of a natural experiment going on and we can see what the differences look like
1: are the birth rates in taiwan's i mean uh, there must be significantly higher than they are in china and multi-children family? Actually, no, this is a funny thing.
2: If you compare Taiwan to urban China, and I think that's a fair comparison because rural China is still so poor, surprisingly remote. But if you compare urban China to Taiwan, the birth rates are really steeply below replacement on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. Something's going on now And that's also true, by the way, in South Korea, and it's going on in Hong Kong as well. You have some of the steepest below-replacement childbearing patterns in this part of the world. I mean, it, it kind of suggests that the Confucian tradition kind of ends with our generation. But it's not what one would imagine if one thought that This really is a family-centered social project with a sort of an infinite horizon.
1: Yeah, it sounds to me like the greatest virtue of Chinese culture has been destroyed.
2: It's something that's almost never written about. It's something you'd be very hard-pressed to find, at least in English-language translations of Chinese literature, accounts that have to deal with this today, that touch upon this the only accounts that I find that deal with this, and they deal with it in an absolutely chilling manner, are Chinese science fiction. It, just as in the Soviet Union, science fiction is tolerated in China today, because people are able to pretend that they're talking about distant planets or faraway times, when of course they're actually talking about China right here now. I mean, for example, like the uh, the Three-Body Problem trilogy, It's wonderful, wonderful set of books. Liu right. Shen talk about just the wasteland that Beijing has become today the moral wasteland that it's become and the unraveling of the really the conception of a family you won't find that pretty much won't find that in Chinese literature contemporary Chinese literature today although you will find a couple of books about the population control program Robert's a really funny sort of thing if if the po- the population control program is almost as big a deal as the Holocaust was. Yeah. I'm not saying numerically, but as a you know as a uh, watershed for uh, the Chinese tradition. And you'll find a couple of books about uh, a couple of literature uh, you know works of literature that'll talk about the population control campaign, but you know they're just a few. It would be as if modern Jewish uh, literature in Israel and the rest of the world and just a couple of books about the Holocaust. You wonder, why? Why? How come just a couple?
1: So, as always with you, Nick, we end with a question, which we'll have to answer another time. Uh, But this has been a great conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it. Phoebe, are you OK? Yeah.
0: I mean, if we I wanted to sneak in one more. (laughs) Nick, I'm so curious to hear your thoughts on Kim Jong-un and his, you know, disappearance. I know you had a a piece about it over the summer, and I feel like you're one of the people that can actually provide context to this kind of thing. It's amazing how little we know. But do you think that we could have a kind of regime change to Kim Jong-un's sister? What's your take on that?
2: Well, you have to recall, Phoebe, that Gramps and Pop both went into seclusion or went to ground for long periods of time, and outsiders are speculating that, you know, all sorts of things that happened to them, only to have them pop up again and right. continue being, you know, a dictator for life, because Kim Jong-un really doesn't have to uh, account for his comings and goings to CNN, if you see yeah. what I mean. And there are, which, there are things which may go on which we don't know about. We don't know enough about North Korea's total war mobilization planning exercises that may take, they do some pretty serious work in that area. We believe may take people out of public eye for a while. COVID is by itself a good enough reason to have baby boy not making a lot of public Uh glad handing. The famine that killed so many people there is not contagious, but this is. The thing which raises my eyebrow is the North Korean press's designation of his sister as Party Center. And this is... We're getting into very, very inside baseball, but that happened earlier this year. Now, Party Center is North Korean code language for the successor. Kim Jong-il, his dad, was referred to as Party Center in this kind of coy way. In the late 70s, and only finally in 1980 at a party congress, did we have the reveal that party center actually meant the dictator's son, Kim Mm Jong-il. In effect, it seems that his sister has been designated as the successor if she's party center. And so it raises the question, why would you designate, let's say, a 31, 32-year-old to be the successor to a 35, 36-year-old? Usually, in a system like North Korea's, saying that you're going to be the next one to take over is kind of bad for your health, especially if you're kind of a rough contemporary. I don't have an answer to you for why this happened, but that could have happened if you kind of needed an insurance policy.
0: Very interesting. All right. Nick, thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.